Homesick by Margot Kim Read by Plush Chapter 3 When Feely and Keeley were very young, which, to Thorne's recollection, still seemed like about two weeks ago, Deese had enjoyed finding all manner of new children's stories to read them. This was because Deese was not very good at storytelling on her own. Deese's own stories all tended to have curiously specific titles, like The Little Princeling Who Never Went to Sleep on Time and Was Eaten by an Orc, and The Tale of How Only Elves Don't Wash Their Hands Before Meals and You Don't Want to Be an Elf, Do You? So when Thorin would periodically leave Arid Lewin for the piecework labor opportunities that defined his exile, he always tried to bring home some new tale he'd heard along the way. Both Deese and her children gratefully accepted them, even if that didn't stop Deese from adding her own personal touches. And the seven dwarves laid out the princess in a beautiful glass casket, Deese said, a sun balanced on each knee. And the oldest dwarf said, Amazing! She is even uglier in death than she was in life. And her brother said, Yes, it's truly astonishing. But they mourned her anyway, because she'd been a good friend. A dwarf in soul, if not in face, as we say about those outsiders whom we love. She'd been a kind girl who had looked after the dwarves in their exile, just as they look after her, though clearly not as well as they should have since she didn't know better than to accept fruit from a strange woman when someone was trying to kill her. Thorin, working on a commission brooch for the local noblewoman, coughed pointedly. But it was sad nonetheless, Deese added giving her brother a look over Feely and Keeley's head that said she'd find it sadder if the princess had been a little smarter. She lay there like the dead for seven days and seven nights, while the dwarves mourned and worked and worked and mourned. On the eighth day, a white horse came galloping through the forest and into the clearing. Its rider was a lost lord of Rohan who had been wandering the woods since the winter moon rose. When he stumbled into the clearing, he gaped in wonder at the woman in the glass casket. She was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen, and he fell in love instantly. Ew, Feely said. Yes, dear, that's men for you, Deese replied. He opened the casket and pressed his lips to hers. Ew, Keely said, though that might have been because the only things Keely could say at that age were whatever Feely said first. Deese tweaked his little nose. Indeed, darling. The princess woke with a shudder. Oh, she proclaimed, you must be the stone of my heart. Your heart stone, the prince replied. Oh, yes, the person my soul was crafted for, the person whose soul was crafted for me. Only the stone of my heart could break the curse. The princess was right, but the princess was also wrong, Dee said. Her son stared up, enraptured. She'd lived so long and so well among our kind, she'd become one of ours. Mehal had granted her the soul of a Khazad. But her love was a man. His heart was nothing but flesh. The passion that had woken her from the sleep of death frightened her love. He jumped on his horse and rode away without a goodbye back into the forest where he became lost once more and died among the foreign trees. And when the dwarves came home that evening from their work... They found their casket just as they had left it, with the princess lying inside. Now, however, she was dead. She had died of a broken heart, 
cracked right down the middle. Following a brief pause for effect, Dees patted Keely and Feely on their backs. And now I think it's time for bed. After they'd tucked her disquieted children in, Thorin said to his sister, I recall that story ending with the princess and the lord living happily ever after when I recounted it to you. Dees settled next to him at the workbench and picked up the burn resting next to her etching work. Yes, well, she said with the kind of bitterness in her voice that she never let slip while her children were in the room. How many have you met in this life that have managed that? Few areas in Erebor had windows. Dwarves were naturally suspicious of rooms with holes in them, but Oin had found a room at the top of the medical bay that abutted, as closely as possible, the outside of the mountain, and so Bilbo's hospital room had a skylight. When noon came, the sunlight slanted through and lit his still body as if he were on display, a disquieting statue. Illness in repose, an artist might title it. His eyes are still responsive to light, Oin was telling another dwarf healer as he pried open Bilbo's eyes. We haven't seen any movement or recognition, though. Fever? asked the other dwarf doctor, who kept shooting nervous glances Thorin's way. Yes, but... Hobbits naturally run hotter than dwarves. Has anyone sent a raven to the Shire? Asked a third dwarf, who seemed to be trying to actively pretend Thorin wasn't in the room at all. Oh, Thorin realized dimly. They're nervous because I'm king and I might do something terrible if I'm displeased. Then he thought, that's fair. I might. I sent four ravens the morning I sent for Gandalf, Oin said. Two came back with no response. The others came back with nothing helpful. That's more than I can say for that wizard. We could send again, the third dwarf said. His new state might be easier to diagnose. It can't hurt, Oin said. It was a phrase that Oin often used to mean it might not help either. Thorin sat on his chair in the corner. His hands were clasped in front of him. His face was calm. He was not here, he thought. How strange. He was watching this from the skylight, looking down at the room of anxious dwarves scurrying around the hobbit who lay still as... well, as still as death. He could think that, because he wasn't really here. Your Majesty, Oin said quietly. After a moment, Thorin looked at him. Or rather, Thorin's body looked at him. And the real Thorin looked at their exchange from about ten feet above and two feet to the left of all that fuss. Perhaps you should get some food. You've been here for hours. Yes, Thorin said. Both statements were true. That didn't mean he was leaving, but they were both certainly true. Oin looked like he had more to say to that, but there was a gentle knocking on the door that sounded nothing like a healer's. Healers, Thorin had learned today, did not knock so much as barge into rooms saying things such as, Where's this patient? Oh, Mehal, your majesty, pardon me. I didn't see you there. This knock sounded light and delicate as bells, and so Thorin knew who it was before the door swung open. Your majesty, Tariel said to Thorin as she stepped into the room, 
her head bowed in respect to both him and the low ceiling by the door. Keeley burst into the room behind her, looking around maniacally. "'Where is he?' Keeley said, which Thorne thought was a silly question, considering that Bilbo was laying right there. But on the other hand, Thorne had often enough this morning looked at the body and gone, "'But that isn't him.' "'Uncle,' Keeley said and bounded over to him, clasping their hands and pressing their foreheads together. "'I can't believe this. I can't. We were coming home to surprise you and Feely with him finishing the weakest steward. Well, I mean, we were escorting King Thranduil as part of his guard on his diplomatic mission to Dale, and then we were coming to visit. But we got here this morning, and the guard said... What the guard said, Thorin didn't learn, because Keeley cut himself off, shaking his head like he could reject this. His eyes slid over to Bilbo as Tariel glided over to him, the healers making way. But... Everything is going to be fine, Keeley said, watching Tariel hover her hands over Bilbo's face. It's going to be fine. That would make for a change, wouldn't it? Thorne had learned a long time ago that he could do any task once it was small enough. The journey back to Erebor had started, for example, with finding a specific door in a quiet and green village. The key was plowing ahead without looking up. Once you cast your eyes past the step you were taking... You were lost. That was how Thorne had gotten through life. It would get him through lunch. Pick up fork. Pick up knife. Spear meat. Cut meat. Raise meat to mouth. Open mouth. Place meat in mouth. Close mouth. Additional bites as needed. What do we know? Keeley asked as Thorne ate, step by step. That he won't wake, Thorne said. He paused as he reminded himself how to eat a piece of bread. Keeley scraped his spoon against the bottom of his bowl, his eyes lowered in thought. What do you think is happening? That I have brought him to peril after peril in exchange for life in a tomb. Thorne frowned down at his bread. Keeley glanced at him nervously, glanced away, glanced back. Do you remember that old story Mum told us when we were little? I mean, the one about the princess of the world of men, who was pretty enough to threaten the crown or something like that. And she ran to the woods and she ate that apple. And there were all those dwarves that made a glass coffin because she was so pretty, even when she was poisoned and everyone thought she was dead. And Mum told us that the point was that men told this story to each other to convince themselves that dwarves think their women are pretty, even when she said anyone with eyes knows is wrong. I think the queen ate someone's heart. Do you remember? Yes, Keely. Thorne said, because it was clear that if Thorne didn't respond, Keeley was going to keep describing until Thorne did. He put a piece of bread in his mouth. Right. Uh, good. Keeley spun the spoon between his fingers. Well, I was thinking that in that story, the princess, she's sleeping and can't be woke. But then she does. So maybe Bilbo ate something. Because he was too... attractive? Thorne swallowed the bread. He'd forgotten the bit about biting first, though, so he choked almost immediately. Keeley started thumping him on the back immediately. It was helpful until it was not. <laughs> Keeley! Thorne coughed, batting off his nephew. I'm fine. Keeley paused, his arm mid-thump. Are you? he asked. He gave Thorne a weighty look. Are you? I'm... I'm breathing. That's not what I mean, uncle. Keeley lowered his arm. 
He rested it, with a little hesitation, on Thorne's shoulder. I mean, how are you? With all this? You've been very quiet. What are you thinking? What Thorne was thinking about was behavior unsuitable for a king. Then he remembered that Feely was still wearing his crown. Well, Thorne still couldn't do what he was thinking about. He knew that. He couldn't say it aloud, either. Couldn't even think about it, except in the oblique way you thought about things you couldn't look at straight on. Thoughts like, what if this plan fails, or what if my grandfather and my father's line does die out because of me? Some things you looked at sideways through a mirror and never named. But at least Thorne was still not king right now, so he was entitled to at least a little more pettiness than usual. Thorne pushed his hair back and stood. Keely stepped back. I'm going on a walk, Thorne said. Uh, Keeley said with the look of someone for whom this conversation was not going according to the hoped-for script. Where? Thorne answered by leaving. If you grabbed Thorne by the beard and dangled him off the side of the mountain, he couldn't tell you what exactly had happened that day to save his life. All he had were flashes of images, the connecting thread lost. Flash. The medical bay where Tariel pressed her fingers against Bilbo's temples her mouth downturned and fraught. Flash, the halls of his father's where the dwarves of the city gave him wide berth. Respect, perhaps. Also, perhaps, a healthy dose of caution. The dwarves of Erebor had a recent memory for the madness in the line of Durin. Flash, the lower western archery halls where Dwalin stood by his side. When did you get here? Thorin asked. I've been following you for the last few miles, Dwalin said making sure you don't wander off a pathway like a blind goat. Ah. Good, Thorin said and started walking again. And if, while you were holding Thorin there in the open air, as he swore by his mistreated beard to murder you for this offense, you asked him what he'd thought about that day, he couldn't tell you that either. Dread, sure. He was sure there was dread. There was grief, though for who or what, Thorin couldn't keep straight. Grief, Thorne had learned, could not exist in discrete chunks. Each loss entwined with every other. So Thorne was likely thinking about grief. Perhaps there was some hope in there as well. Bilbo brought out hope more frequently than any other emotion, except perhaps exasperation and the niggling sense of inadequacy regarding one's baking abilities. But it was mostly hope Bilbo provided. Hope and the good things that grew in hope's fertile soil so Thorne likely thought that, too. Mostly, though, whatever Thorne thought was probably along the lines of, It's amazing how unconcerned I am that I am floating above my body looking down. What a strange sensation. What a relief not to be in that meat right now. Flash. The weaving district. A slight glimmer in the air he didn't think about. The moment of blind panic when a thread of silver clotheslined him across the throat. The dwarf merchant was quite apologetic, understandably, as Dwalin glowered like it had been an assassination attempt. But Thorne coughed two times and thought, Ah, well, that's one way to come back to the meat again. Please, the fault was entirely mine, Thorne said to the merchant, trying very desperately to apologize. Dwalin looked down at him. He let the merchant go. Your Majesty, Dwalin asked cautiously, the way he did when company was standing right there. You could hardly start scolding a king when a citizen was watching. Thorne nodded to the merchant and started walking again.
Have you come back, then? Dwalin asked gruffly. Thorin rubbed his throat. How far are we from the medical bay? Not far by cart, Dwalin said. If your majesty doesn't mind, I've had my fill of walking today. The cart Dwalin flagged down did not take them to the medical bay. It dropped them off outside the gate to the royal quarters where Feely waited for them. Uncle, he said. Thorin spared a glare for Dwalin, who shrugged unapologetically. Your majesty, Thorin replied. Unless you no longer wish to claim that title. If it's all the same to you, Feely said, I can stay acting king a while longer. He gave Thorin a wan smile. This week is the meeting of the three kings, after all. I'd hate to make you have to speak to Thranduil when you didn't feel up to it. Feely looked older than Thorin remembered. Kingship did that to you. It made old men out of children. Then keep the crown, Thorin said. Unless you and my guardsmen are using it to send me to bed like a child. When Keeley was sick, you banned him from the mountain for the sake of his health, Feely said. I wouldn't expect you to hold yourself to lower standards. Are you banning me from the mountain? Uncle. It was very strange to hear Deese's voice come out of her son's mouth. Thorn could practically hear the unspoken, Don't be smart. You need to sleep, Feely said. Bilbo is doing enough of that for both of us, Thorn didn't say. He saw the thought pass across Feely's face, and that was enough. I'll sleep, Thorin lied. But not here. Thorin suspected the head healer had some objection to royalty sleeping on a cot in one of his medical rooms, though Thorin wasn't sure if that was because he had opinions about the dignity of royalty, or opinions about overnight guests in the medical bay. Either way, Thorin didn't care. The thing about being the possibly mad member of the royal family is that people certainly did what you asked them to particularly when the acting king was standing behind you. There was a part of Thorn that knew how difficult this behavior would make his life once he had to sit on the throne again. There was a far, far larger part of Thorn that did not care. It was a novel change to his usual mindset, which could be summed up as, as Bilbo would say, caring rather too much. The head healer left. Feely left. Even Dwalin left after Thorn promised he'd stay in this room tonight. It was an easy promise to make. He'd spent the day trying to wander away from this room, and that had brought him nothing but the bruise across his neck and aching feet. Leave this room? Thorn slid off his cot and sat on the edge of Bilbo's bed. Where else could Thorn possibly be? Bilbo's hands felt colder than usual when Thorn touched one. It was a shift from the fever heat of the morning, he wrapped his hands around Bilbo's, trying to rub some warmth in. He warmed Bilbo's left hand. He warmed Bilbo's right hand. When he was done with his right hand, his left hand must be cold again, so Thorin took it. Do you remember that story? Keeley had asked. And yes, Thorin had remembered, and yes, he'd thought about the parallels of the story himself. But Bilbo's death sleep had been a long time coming. There was no apple found next to him in bed, no scheming and beautiful dwarf ready to step up and take the credit. If you were going to strike the fairest in the land, you certainly wouldn't have struck Bilbo. Thorn meant that in the nicest way possible. There wasn't a face in the world he found more beautiful. But even Thorn could admit that the lack of beard was 
unsettling. He'd told that to Bilbo enough, and Bilbo had always replied with something like, Then you can only imagine what the beards must be like for me. They could while away an afternoon like that, when they had a free afternoon to while. If Bilbo was better, Thorne would make more free afternoons. When, Thorne meant. When Bilbo was better. Would they be a story someday? A foolish question. They already were. The magnum opus of retellings of the quest, the ballad of Thorn Oakenshield and Bilbo Baggins of the Shire, was a 37-part epic song that got trotted out by one bard or another every feast. It was possibly longer since the last time he checked. The verses had an unsettling tendency to multiply when Thorn wasn't looking. He'd suspected that Bilbo was writing a few of them, especially the later verses, which tended to have lines like, Thorn the Bold was king of the deep. Too important was he to get any sleep. Too valiant was he for any dates to keep. The hobbit ate his dinner alone. The bards would get their endings. They always did sooner or later, and endings were either glorious or tragic. Either one worked. Glory was what you hoped for, and tragedy was what you generally got. As long as the tale was passionate, dwarves would love it. The hobbit who withered. The dwarf who withered with him. What a tale for the children. And with a kiss, the prince woke the sleeping beauty. Thorn snorted. It was ridiculous. But, said the thoughts that would never shut up, it felt like a next step. And haven't you been starved for a next step? Without really thinking about it. Because thinking would lead to hoping, would lead to expecting, would lead to disappointment. Thorn lowered his head until it hovered just above Bilbo's. Thorn shut his eyes. He stayed very still. He waited. There, just barely, the faintest hint of breath stirring Thorn's beard. Suddenly, Thorn's mouth went dry. Suddenly, it felt like there was a bird trapped inside his ribcage. Bilbo wasn't allowed to die. He wasn't. Thorn just had to make that clear to the world. Thorn brushed his lips against Bilbo's, so lightly that he wondered if Bilbo could have felt it if he was awake. Thorn drew back a hair, licked his lips, which felt now too harsh, too rough for anything as delicate as kissing, and he lowered himself again. He put some weight behind the kiss. He thought of a string of love that started down at his feet and threaded its way up through Thorn's entire body, through Thorn's legs and coiling in his stomach, wrapping itself through Thorn's ribs and weaving up through his heart. It circulated in his blood, but it was something thicker, something stronger, something warmer, something whole. He thought of that, of love like something you could touch and grab and pull. He grabbed it. He pulled. Whatever strength I have, Thorn thought as he pressed his mouth to Bilbo's. Let it pass to him. Then Thorn sat back, just far enough to watch Bilbo's face. He cradled Bilbo's head in his hands, and he waited. For what? For something. For a stirring. For a breath. Thorn held his own. Bilbo slept on. And despite Thorn's best efforts, the hope had come as it had always come, unbidden but unshakable, more painful than any sword through the gut. What am I supposed to do? Thorn thought as his hands began to shake, 
as Bilbo's face began to blur. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Tell me, Bilbo, Thorn whispered against his cheek. You're always so clever. You always find a way out. Please, please, tell me what to do and I will do it. Anything. Anything. The only response was silence. And then the room wasn't silent anymore. From the doorway came the sound of soft rustling. The sound of someone who had decided it was time his presence was heard. As loath as I am to interrupt the glorious king under the mountain, Thranduil said as Thorin turned to stare, might I offer my help? When is it you plan to return home? Thorin asked as casually as he could manage while he carved another rose into the leg of a new hobbit-sized armchair. It was good wood, sturdy and rich from an oak that had grown on the mountainside. Thorin was getting good at working with wood these days. In what little time he had in this first year of rebuilding a lost kingdom, he'd passed his time when he was laid up in bed whittling and the impulse stuck with him. Perhaps it was a homely craft ill-suited for a dwarven king, but no one had complained so far that Thorin's artistic direction now excluded gold. Bilbo, smoking from one of Thorin's new hand-carved pipes, seemed to take no issue. He sat there, puffing as Thorin worked. Ah, oh, I don't know, he said lightly. I suppose I will have to send for my things soon, though I pity the dwarves who'd have to bring them here. Thorin's hand slipped, which was unfortunate when you were whittling. Thorin, are you all right? What do you mean, send for your things? Thorin asked. Then he double-checked his thumb was still attached. It was, but less so than it had been before. He was sure that would become priority in a few moments. Bilbo glanced around and grimaced before he squatted down next to Thorin and whipped off his cravat. Sawdust everywhere, he muttered as he grabbed Thorin's hand. What do you mean? Thorin pressed. Bilbo eyed Thorin's hand with the quickness of someone who had seen too many wounds lately and pressed his cravat against it. Keep pressure on that! He stood and headed back towards Thorin's washroom. I'm getting some water so we can wash it. We might need to fetch a healer. It looked deep. You haven't answered me, Thorin called after him. Answered what? Bilbo called back. What do you mean? You'll need to send for your things. Bilbo hurried back with a jug of water in hand and a cross look on his face. So I can read my books and sleep in my bed. Why did you chop off your thumb? It's fine. You're cradling a handful of blood. Give me that. And yes, Thorn, I will need things from Bag End, Bilbo said as he rinsed Thorn's cut. I know you are apparently determined to build my quarters by hand, which I thank you for, but I do still have family heirlooms I would like to have, and I'm sorry, you will have to accept that I would like to own things you didn't make. But, Thorn started, you're the king, you're very busy, I don't want you spending your free time building furniture for me when you should be relaxing. Building furniture is relaxing, Thorn said, which wasn't his main point, but still had to be said. I want you to be comfortable. I am comfortable, Bilbo said crossly, scowling down at Thorin's now cleaned hand. He wrapped it in his cravat, tighter this time, with a bandage knot that would have made Oin proud. You need stitches. But what about when you go back? Then you will still need stitches. Thorin, what are we talking about? 
If your belongings are here, Thorin asked slowly, what happens when you move back to the Shire? Bilbo looked at him in surprise. I am not moving back to the Shire, he said cautiously. Thorin stared at him. Thorin stared a while longer. Thorin stared until Bilbo's face had shifted from confusion to alarm. Were you, uh, I mean to say? Bilbo was slowly becoming the color of a tomato. A proper tomato, not the strange sickly ones that were all he'd managed in Erebor's greenhouses so far. If that's fine? You are not going home? There was something like panic in Bilbo's eyes. Possibly because, as Thorin just realized, a bleeding dwarf had just shouted maniacally in his face. Bilbo cracked a little smile, looking at Thorin with an expression on his face that was a cross between alarm and building amusement. Well, I rather thought that, uh, that, uh, he let go of Thorin's hand to spread his own. This was home now. There was a brief lull between them. Then Thorin tackled Bilbo, who squawked in the most delightfully Bilbo way. Really, Bilbo said as Thorin pinned him. Did you think I was decorating my bedroom because I was bored? Have you been waiting for me to rush out with a treasure chest and a quick goodbye when spring was here? Yes, was the answer to that, but Thorin felt no need to say that now. I'm here to stay, Thorin, Bilbo said a little softer. And I'm here to stay as long as you'll have me. Whether or not you're crushing my chest in the process, which you are, by the way. Thorin sat up. Bilbo took, in Thorin's personal opinion, a few overdramatic breaths and looked up at him. I am still ordering my books from the Shire, Bilbo said. Along with anything else you could ever need, Thorin said. I'll send out every dwarf in Erebor if that's what it takes to bring it all back. Bilbo grinned. You overestimate my library. Help me up. This shouldn't have been the happiest moment of his life. It should have been the birth of his nephews, or sitting at his grandfather's side, or walking at last back into Erebor. Thorin had the niggling feeling that happiness should have come with the crown they placed back on his head as the once-exiled dwarves of Erebor cheered in the halls of their old home. Those weren't it, though. Those should have been the peak moments of happiness in his life. And happiness had certainly come with those moments. The problem was that so had many other emotions. Duty, for example. Worry. Commitment. Shame. Thorn helped Bilbo up and felt nothing but joy. Joy as sturdy and deep as the mountain. Joy, he thought in a very undwarven way. As big and blue as the open sky. Thranduil sat on the edge of Bilbo's bed. It would have been a bizarre sentence at the best of times. If Bilbo was an utter domestic, the home and the hearth and the heart, Thranduil was... well. Thorin could call Thranduil many things. Thorin had called Thranduil many things. Thorin was thinking of a few right now. Tyrant, for example. A bald-faced, wine-drunk elk lover for another and so on and so forth. Balin had banned them from sitting next to or directly across from each other at diplomatic meetings for just this reason. Whatever insults Thorn could hurl Thranduil's way, 
pointy-eared idiot as just another possibility. Even a neutral observer could admit that Thranduil belonged nowhere in this tableau, this sick room, this place of healing in the heart of the greatest of the dwarven kingdoms. He was too disgustingly tall for one, though the fair part of Thorn conceded that he hadn't minded height when it had been Tariel's. And yet, here he was, his crown resting on the bedside table so he wouldn't scratch Bilbo's skin as he pressed their foreheads together. I have come to offer aid, Thranduil said as he'd swept into the room. Before you ask, your nephew let me in and led me here. If you must rage, rage at him and spare me the bluster. That had, obviously, not been enough for Thorin. Get out of here, he'd snapped, fury drying the tears that were still wet on his cheeks. Gloat over our misery in your own cursed kingdom. I am not here to gloat. And if I were, I would be gloating in Dale this evening while Bard judges me for it, Thranduil had said. And are you so rich in help that you can afford to turn me away? Thranduil had at least possessed the decency to take Thorin's silence as an answer. As soon as Thranduil had asked that, Thorin would have begged his help if that was what it had taken. So here Thranduil was. Helping. Thorin stood on the other side of the bed, his hand curled around Bilbo's. He waited. And after several long moments, Thranduil straightened. He won't wake, he said. Yes, Thorin said curtly. We have figured that out. Thranduil did not roll his eyes, but only because elves held themselves too good for such petty gestures. He implied eye-rolling instead. That is not my observation of the present. That is my statement for the future. He will not wake. Thorin's hand twitched. If he'd been holding a rock, he would have crushed it into dust. But these were Bilbo's fingers underneath his, so he stopped himself. He didn't need to think about it. It was instinct at this point, keeping Bilbo safe. Whatever good that instinct did. If it even mattered anymore. Thranduil studied Thorin's face carefully. Not in your care. You know a way to make him better, Thorin asked quietly. He dropped his eyes to Bilbo's face. In the moonlight, he could be sleeping. In the moonlight, it looked as if Thorin could shake him awake if he needed to. Yes. It was cruel of you to not say that immediately. Thorin tilted his head. You're right, he said. If Thorin was in a different mood, that would have been the most beautiful phrase in the world to leave Thranduil's lips. I apologize. Thorin looked up sharply. Thranduil looked back with that same expression that he always had, a sort of look that implied he had seen you naked once from a very unflattering angle, and that he was still laughing on the inside at the sight. Thorin couldn't spot any apology lingering on his face. "'What do I have to do?' Thorin asked. "'You,' Thranduil said. "'Nothing. "'You are king under the mountain, and it is the mountain that is killing him.' Thranduil stood, the full length of him unfurling until he loomed over the bed. He walked over to the small table against the back wall where Balin had hopefully laid out the late dinner Thorin hadn't eaten. Thranduil plucked up a pork roll and lightly grimaced. "'Have you heard the tale of the journey of Isel? It was my wife's favorite story to tell our son when he was young.' "'I don't have time for bedtime stories.' "'And yet you will listen.' 
Thranduil cautiously sniffed at the roll and dropped it back on the plate. I myself never shared her fondness for stories. Her tastes ran too maudlin for me. The full saga would take months to tell, so I shall give you the abridged version of the relevant section. Isel was an elf maiden who ran from her home when she was young, and had great adventures that amuse young princelings and their wild mothers. Once, when she was hunting along the coast, she heard beautiful singing coming from the sea. She looked out, and there was a beautiful young maiden who looked to be swimming and singing as she swam. She was a creature of water, a skin-changer who was neither one nor the other but both at once. Though she had the tail of a fish, she had the beautiful head and torso of a woman, and Isil fell in love immediately. "'Is this the abridged version?' Thorin asked. "'What I recounted can take up to a week to tell properly. Just tell me what I have to do.' "'I am telling you.' Thranduil abandoned his survey of dwarf cuisine and poured himself a goblet of warm ale." Though Isel and the Sea Woman loved each other, Isel could not live in the sea. The Sea Woman said, Then I will join you on land. She skin changed her tail into legs, and for a time the women were happy. They explored the coast together, as only a woman of the land and a woman of the sea could. Soon Isel missed the forests of her home. The Sea Woman said she would go with her, for she had always longed to roam and see the world inland. As they set out, however, the sea woman grew weaker and weaker. The further they went from the sea, the paler and thinner she grew. When they reached the heart of the forest, the sea woman fell. She slept and could not be woken, even by the greatest of our healers. Thorin tightened his fingers around Bilbo's. With his other hand, he curled his fingers around Bilbo's wrist. He waited, as he always did, for a pulse. Thranduil braced himself before he sipped his ale. Isel mourned the sea-woman, until her mother came to her and said, She is not dead, but sleeping. Some creatures belong to their land. Thus Isel carried her love back home to the sea from whence she had come. She lay the sea-woman in the surf. When the foam of the sea hit her, the sea-woman's legs fused together back into a tail. She pushed herself out into the waves and disappeared from Isel without a word as Isil stayed on the beach and wept for her lost love. There, underneath Thorn's fingers, one faint beat. So you see, Thranduil said. He took another sip of his ale. The answer is clear. I roll Bilbo back out to sea, Thorn said, because he could not resist saying it. But his heart was beginning to pound again, hope fluttering its wings once more. He squashed it as best he could. A children's story is not medicine. It is amongst elves, Thranduil said. We have long lives and long histories. You do what you can to make the lessons stick in your mind. I should have expected a dwarf to distrust the wisdom of poetry. Then speak to me in prose, Thorn snapped. Erebor is killing your hobbit. The words rang in the room like the echo of a dropped hammer. Thranduil met Thorin's eyes and drank. "'We belong to our land,' he said, with a softness Thorin had not associated with the elf king. "'Elves cannot survive inside the mountain. We starve without starlight. Dwarves have always fared poorly in the woods. Goblins cannot stand the sun. Men, alone of all creatures, can travel from realm to realm without consequence. 
But that is because they are never truly at home. The world kills them soon enough. And Bilbo? Thorn's mouth was so dry he could scarcely form the words. There are adventures of every race, but seldom from the race of hobbits. The ones spoken of in lore rarely wandered too far from home or too long. He is six years from the Shire, a thousand miles away, and he has never once returned. Mr. Baggins has likely been sick longer than you suspect. Perhaps longer than he would suspect. For elves it begins as mere wariness. Perhaps hobbits are the same. We fade gently, but inevitably. Thranduil drained his glass and poured himself a refill. He was no longer looking at Thorin. Pity, Thorin realized dimly through the muffled fog of his mind. Thranduil was pitying him. He must go home, then, Thorin said. Thranduil paused for the faintest second, the goblet at his lips. It is a long journey, he said carefully. He has been sick for quite some time. But there is no other choice. No, Thranduil said. There is not. Then Bilbo must go home. And he must go home as quickly as possible. That is the beginning and the end of the matter. Thranduil tilted his head slightly. One of those little elf affectations that made Thorn's nose itch. Send your nephew off with him in the morning. Keeley is a fine warrior and a capable leader of whatever small retinue you assemble. Thorn's mind was in plans and action and the next step, but the last comment dragged him back to the present for a moment. You respect him, Thorn said, perhaps a bit too incredulously. Thranduil gave Thorn a cool look, like he was something disgusting that had caught on the hem of Thranduil's robes. So the two of them were back in familiar territory. Your nephew has performed admirably in his tasks in my kingdom, and he is a dwarf with the rare distinction of taste to fall in love with an elf. Why should I not speak highly of him? Thorn thought of the Keeley he knew and said, with complete honesty, No reason at all. He makes his people proud each day. Charge him with swiftness and send him with haste to ferry Mr. Baggins home, Thranduil said, putting his goblet down. He reached inside his robe and pulled out a small folded pouch the size of Thorin's palm. After the battle five years ago, Mr. Baggins gave me the last of his leaf. I had been lax in returning the favor. I ordered this from the Shire to give to him. It may serve as some medicine to him on his way home. He needs neither food nor drink in his death sleep. But perhaps the smoke of a leaf grown in his land soil will do him good. He held out the package. Thorin took it. He even managed a grateful nod while he did so. Thank you, Thorin said. The words hardly even caught in his throat. You've been uncharacteristically decent. This time, Thranduil did roll his eyes. Thorin was a little proud of himself. I do know something of the difficulties when the people you love come in conflict with the land you rule, Thranduil said. I know how hard it can be to make the choice that kings must make. But I am not king, Thorin thought. Feely wears my crown, and wears it well. He had known once, with an iron certainty he could barely articulate, that he needed to return to Erebor. Then he had returned, and the certainty had gone. It was back again. It curled along the ley lines of his love. Bilbo had followed Thorin across the earth once. Thorin would be the one to take him back. And, 
Here at last he looked straight on at the thought he never let himself consider. He would not come home again. Thorne's heart didn't lie in Erebor anymore. There was not a chance, in this world or the next, that he would let Bilbo pass from his sight. There, that was his plan. There was a story for the damned bards. But Thorne saw no reason to mention that to Thranduil. Or to anyone else in Erebor tonight. They could find out when he was gone in the morning. You can take the ale with you if you like, Thorne said instead. Thorne thought that it was a testament to the strange dread and terrible inescapable hope of this evening, that he was happy when Thranduil did. 